Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. So today we are following up with our previous episode on the book Morality, the Catholic View by Father Survey Pinkers. This is going to be part two, and we're just going to pick up where we left off. Uh, but before we do, uh, any thoughts or anything from you guys? No, I don't think so. I think that I'm excited to get to the second half of the book, which is his more constructive, uh, theologically constructive aspect of his work. And it is, um, it's worth reading. It's good. It's good. I think we're gonna have a good discussion. Yeah, I think that the uh, the second half definitely gives us, a, I think, a pretty clear insight into what Father Survey thinks moral theology should be, kind of the direction it should go, and uh, also sort of dealing with issues that uh, come up after the Second Vatican Council and sort of the kind of modern questions of ethics and things like that. So I think it, our our listeners should be able to get some good stuff out of out of the second half specifically and kind of see how it applies. Uh, so with that, I think uh, we can go ahead and jump in. And the part that we're jumping in on after we've kind of gone through the history of moral theology and its approach, uh, Father Survey asks the, the question, um, what does Christian ethics look like after the Second Vatican Council? And he asks that question because there is uh, a, a noticeable shift that happens, that takes place uh, at the Second Vatican Council uh, in light of the years of manualist sort of moral theology uh, or in a sense, a sort of scientific moral theology. And the Second Vatican Council attempts to sort of reorientate the discipline of moral theology towards a more integrated approach. In some ways it works and in some ways it doesn't work. Uh, but I thought a good place to start would be to sort of go with a few uh, documents that are from the Second Vatican Council or around the same time as the Second Vatican Council. Uh, the first, uh, Father Servet quotes uh, from Optatum Totius, which is uh, a document on the theological formation uh, of future priests. So this is on training priests. It says, special care should be given to the perfecting of moral theology. Its scientific presentation should draw more fully from the teaching of Holy Scripture and should throw light upon the exalted vocation of the faithful in Christ and their obligation to bring forth fruit in charity for the life of the world. The next quote kind of picks up on this, and this is also from the Congregation for Catholic Education on, on the formation of priests, and it said, in terms of moral theology, we should be viewing it as the study of the process by which the human person created in the likeness of God and redeemed by the grace of Christ tends toward his full realization according to the demands of his divine calling in the context of the economy of salvation his 
historically realized in the church. And I think I think that kind of encapsulates the 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 thrust at the Second Vatican Council to bring moral theology into the sort of the everyday life of the Christian. That has to be the right approach, I think. And not just in the everyday life of the Christian is in terms of something that you you do in practice, but also as a discipline that the every everyday Christian thinks about moral theology, engages in it, contributes to this conversation rather than, of course, there's going to be specialists, but kind of the manualist tradition was to be a moral theologian was this hyper specialized field that was a bit hived off from the rest of theology, life, and devotion practice. You got told what morality was rather than engaging in it. And so I think you said it, Father Wesley, a, a call for a more integrated approach by the whole body of Christ. Yeah, I think I think that that's the 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 way. And and I think that plays out for Father Survey as he kind of gets into the the meat of what he's he's sort of presenting as a constructive uh, critique in some ways. Um, but the Second Vatican Council, in addition to presenting this sort of view, this integrated whole, it also brings up the question, and I think this is a really pertinent question, does a Christian ethic exist? I mean, that's a big, big question you know, in the, the middle of the 20th century, um, a lot of people are asking, especially non-Christians looking at philosophical ethics and, and trying to come to terms uh, with what that means. And then the, the church saying, is there a particularly Christian ethic? And if so, can it be autonomous from the church? Or is it something that's within the the life of the church, within the uh the sort of DNA of the church itself. Um, I think those are really good questions. I think at first blush, we would all say, you know, can ethics exist outside of the church? I think our response would be to say, no, that sounds ridiculous. But a lot of people sort of approach it that way. That's not uncommon. Um, so I think that uh, on, on page 49, Father Survey think says something profound that that's just true um he says the church does not believe that it can neglect anything that is human anything that promotes the dignity of the of the human person so a christian ethic is a real thing it is it's an essential thing because the faith touches every aspect of the human person how we act how we live what we do in community, it's all tied into one singular reality. Um, so in, in, a, in a world that is struggling to come to terms with whether or not there is a particular ethic that we should follow and what that looks like, uh, I think the church is poised uniquely to offer uh, something that touches every part of life. Uh, it's not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a when I go to mass thing, but it's an every moment uh, is a is a moment that is uh, pertinent to the life of the church. It's 
uh, either infused with grace or it's not. It's 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 sort of uh, an all or nothing thing. Uh, and I think I think that's a really positive sort of answer when society and people are looking at, at sort of different systems to apply to different areas in their life. Some more of a, car, a compartmentalized view of, of life, whereas the church offers this overarching, touching every piece of your life sort of vision uh, for the human person. It's more humanizing in, in the end because you're a real human being whose actions and thoughts and desires are all accounted for. So I think we can uh, kind of move on a little bit towards uh, what Father Survey talks about as the abandonment of natural, uh, natural law in light of modern philosophy and the sciences. Uh, I don't know about you guys, I thought this was a pretty interesting section. So basically, Father Survey begins by looking at the, the sort of development um, and progression towards kind of modern philosophy's uncomfortability with natural law. Um, and then looks at the church after the Second Vatican Council and has some some criticisms, I think, for, for how it plays out. Um, so he says, basically, in an attempt to be open to the world, lots of moralists taking that kind of proposed vision at the Second Vatican Council reacted against what they saw as the restrictive sort of manualist moral theology. But in doing so, in reacting against it, they sort of risked exiling natural law as a result. Because um, we did mention the fact that the, the, the manuals provided like a useful tool to the church. They, it wasn't this, you know, evil thing. It wasn't this horrible thing that happened. Uh, it just maybe didn't cover the full scope and breadth of what moral theology has to offer. But it does present the, you know, moral theology as a discipline with clear understandings of natural law, divine law, what God expects of us, how we then react and live according to those precepts. And so, you know, as is the case sometimes with reactive movements, um, kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater may, may be dangerous in light of um, modern philosophy. Um, any thoughts on kind of how that plays out? I, I thought it was an interesting uh, section as well, and it made me think of um, David Billy Hart's new book, Tradition and Apocalypse, because he talks about scientism and, and kind of where scientism comes from. Um, and how, you know, the, traditionally there have been four causes, four types of causes that, that academics investigates. There's um, formal, there's final, there's material, and efficient, right? Uh, science as an endeavor can only ever uh, investigate material and efficient causes. And that's what they do. And, and we need the sciences in order to understand those causes. And those causes are important. What, what happened with the Enlightenment is 
scientists bracketed the formal and final cause and said, well, we can't talk about that because that's not in our field. But as scientism has taken root, what the, the move has been is instead of just bracketing those questions for philosophy and theology, those questions have been dismissed completely. Those aren't real questions because science can't investigate them. Um, and so I think it's important, the kind of distinctions he makes here in this section about scientific obser observation versus, um, versus moral theology. I think at the bottom of page 51, he says, if scientific observation requires cold objectivity, then moral perception requires the warm flame of action. And then he goes on to, uh, he, he critiques uh, how in, not critiques, but but makes the distinction that in, in, in the sciences, the scientist is sort of a neutral observer from the outside, right, looking in, whereas the moral theologian uh, has to be, uh, has to have a different attitude, partly because they're participating uh, in this um, sort of ethical action as well. Um, and then finally, he makes a really good distinction, I think, that, that moral law is not the same thing as scientific law. Um, and again, I think that, I think having those causes in mind helps us, because what do ethics do? It's more about our formal cause, right? What we're made to be, or our final cause, what we're going towards, whereas the scientific law is looking at what things are made of and how things change. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's exactly it. Um, because, I, I mean, I don't want to harp on it too much, but if you, if you look at, at the way the question of metaphysics plays out um, sort of in the Enlightenment and then post-Enlightenment world, you've got Kant basically saying that like supernatural things, you can't, you can't even talk about them. We don't know about them. We can't talk about them. And moral theology is, is dealing in a sense with those metaphysical questions, those supernatural realities. And so scientific observation and investigation becomes so normatively the practice uh, because we can observe it, we can quantify it, we can, you know, hard evidence, hard facts, those sort of things. Um, and that completely exiles the interior life from the conversation. And, and Father uh, Survey is, is very clear that, you know, moral experience is is an interior reality. He keeps going back and back and back to the idea that it is interior to the person um principally because you know we are made in the image of god and the holy spirit indwells us so there's this idea of living within ourselves uh, and that's not a pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of idea that's a living within yourself is living within the life of the spirit that has been given to you has been infused into you uh, in that sort of baptismal reality uh, and on page 52, I think he just basically encapsulates this whole idea by saying morality is a wisdom. That instead of viewing it as in a scientific approach, which is like sort of neutral and exterior to us, when we view it as interior to us, we view it as something that is sort of the true perception of things and the right application of those. Um, it's, it's, it is wisdom in a very traditional sense. And then wisdom is something you grow into to become more wise. You become better at uh, identifying, living, putting into practice those particular things. 
Um, so I, I appreciated that that he engages with this sort of question, um, you know, about science and and sort of natural law. And we'll get into more natural law as things go, because uh, that's pretty heavily um, emphasized by Father Survey. Um, but sort of in light of the question about natural law, that takes us into the kind of further question of are there intrinsically evil acts and are there universal laws? Because again, those are things that have been questioned uh, for, for a long time. I mean, it's not, it's not something that, you know, oh, in the last few decades, people no longer believe in intrinsically evil acts or universal laws. Those things have been questioned for hundreds of years. Um, and so I, I think the first question uh, is, are there such things as intrinsically evil acts, acts which one can never do, things that are always evil? Um, and are there laws, are there uh, norms which we have to follow because of intrinsically evil acts? And it, again, it seems somewhat basic from a Christian standpoint. Uh, but Fa Father Survey very clearly says, you know, yes, there are intrinsically evil acts. Um, and he talks about norms like the Ten Commandments. Um, I think if if our listeners are familiar with things like an examination of conscience before making your confession, uh, there's usually some list some set of norms that you're you that you use to to sort of judge yourself in that sort of interior tribunal ten commandments seven deadly sins whatever it is um they exist and it and it again sort of points to the the reality that the church acknowledges that there are things that one cannot do uh, and again, it's not an exterior obligation. It's a sort of recognition interiorly of the fact that we are made in God's image or that we are in a community. Um, so I think one that kind of comes to mind, right, is murder. That's something that is innately and inherently recognized as being, you know, intrinsically evil but you know we like to try to justify certain things away we try to make it situational we try to say oh it's contextual it's not murder in this case it's murder in this case but uh, father survey i think has a pretty searing critique of situational ethics where he says the moment you begin to contextualize like that is the moment it no longer has any meaning and we can redefine what that particular thing is based on changeable norms, not concrete norms. A society at this time recognizes this thing to be okay. So the norm is now this, and then at some later date it changes in that society, and it's now okay, or now it's not okay. So it's really sort of a, a, a ship without a rudder in a sense. Um, and and that's something that within the within the moral life, 
is contrary to the way scripture and and our lord presents it uh, and so there is this sort of harmony acting between the natural law and then those divine precepts those things that have been given to us revealed to us where we recognize something as being intrinsically evil and then also there is in a sense those laws those precepts uh, that canon which with with which we can sort of look at a situ you know we look at an act a situation and we can judge it according to that canon we can kind of put it up against uh, what has been revealed to us um this brings up i think revisionism i mean uh the sort of revisionist approach to moral theology locates moral judgments in comparing or balancing of good and evil effects that an action causes in relation to an end pursued um this is also called proportionalism consequentialism because it looks at the proportions and the consequences uh but ultimately this is just utilitarianism this is just sort of what what is most good in this situation for the most amount of people um and i think that's largely the kind of functional ethic for a lot of people a lot of christian people included you know i didn't hurt anybody by doing this i didn't you know i'm the only person it's it's almost sort of like a i might make some listeners angry but this is it's almost sort of a libertarian approach like so long as i don't hurt other people i can do this and be totally fine which is also a strategy that's used sometimes to uh diminish the importance of going to confession right well i didn't hurt other people uh, so the sin is just between me and God, so I can just kind of keep it between me and God. But that's never true, right? Your sin always is in, is uh, has implications for the broader church. Yeah, our, our actions are—we're never isolated. We're not—we're not monads, right? We're not Leibnizian monads that do, don't interact with anyone else, and that our sin doesn't affect our neighbor. Uh, no man is an island. Exactly. I mean, it's cancer, right? And cancer spreads. It metastasizes within a community. But this really, really, really fits with the kind of technical mentality born out of that emphasis on science. It's a, it's sort of a use gain proposition. It's, well, if I have this many good acts, it sort of outweighs this bad act. Or, you know, this, this ultimately is going to benefit 98% of, of people, therefore, it must be inherently good. But again, we just have to call that what it is. I mean, that's just utilitarianism. And, you know, the the reality, however difficult it, it is for people to, to sort of accept, is that utilitarianism is not consonant with the Christian faith. Um, because if it were, if, if, if utilitarianism uh, or revisionism, proportionalism, consequentialism was the kind of moral approach that we would take as Christians, 
we would be ignoring Christ's injunction to love God and love your neighbor. <laughs> um, and so I, I think I think that uh, a, a robust Catholic moral theology, which views its end in the beatific vision and uh, the pursuit of God and and true happiness, I think is the answer to this. Uh, because each person within the community of the church is trying to grow in wisdom, in moral theology, and in sort of moral excellence. Um, and, and I think that's just the, the way forward. Born out of this particular conversation uh, is a, a further conversation on the role of the conscience. And the view in sort of uh, our cultural milieu has shifted greatly uh, in, in, on the question of conscience. So for the, for the manualist tradition, conscience is the preeminent locus of the moral life, with the center of gravity being the law, and conscience and moral theology act as interpreters uh, of the moral law. So that's, I think, a pretty helpful way to view conscience, but it's also not, I think, the most complete way to view conscience. Um, I think in society today, in reaction to uh, that more sort of rigid understanding of conscience, it's gone the complete other direction to say that, you know, your conscience is the ultimate arbiter of of the law it is the thing that produces the law it's not the thing that interprets the law and so you get the same problem just sort of two extremes uh you know spectrums usually come back they form a circle <laughs> and they kind of meet um and so viewing conscience i think inappropriately throws your sort of the 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 compass of moral theology sort of out of out of whack um, and this is where, uh, on numerous occasions, uh, Father Survey uses, uh, John Henry Newman, uh, to kind of talk about this idea, but I think this presents a pretty full vision for what the conscience is. Uh, Father Survey says, conscience signifies the voice of God that resounds in the intimacy of the human heart one-on-one. -on -one. Conscience judges and commands, but it also calls to conversion. And uh, John Henry Newman refer refers to it as the Aboriginal Vicar of Christ, uh, which I think is a which is a really beautiful way of, of thinking about it. That conscience looks in two directions: it looks to God and the law, and it looks into the subject, into itself. And so when we have this understanding that the, the conscience being made in the image of God is something that we possess, it's not, you know, however much I, I love my dog, my dog doesn't have a conscience. She might act like it when she, you know, destroys something and I come in and she knows she did something wrong, but it's not the same thing as having the ability to both look towards God and then look towards the self 
and and see how the balance doesn't play out right to see that i both looked at the law and looked at my subjectivity and found myself wanting i'm just happy and surprised to hear you admit that your dog does not in fact have a conscience <laughs> i do anthropomorphize her a lot um because she's the best dog that's ever existed on the planet um and you can come at me all all you listeners my dog is better than yours you just have to get over it it's objective um but yeah i think i think that's a ultimately as she starts barking what a good what a good dog um i think this this kind of conversation on conscience ultimately i think assists us in understanding that relationship between natural law uh, and divine law that uh, we do have this this it's hard to, i mean i don't know what to call it um this innate gift uh, that allows us to uh, both look to god and and look within ourselves uh, so that we can make those judgments and and act accordingly it's something that come you know it came up with um saint bernard and grace and free choice this ability to look at ourselves to 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 truly exercise those sort of free actions um this is kind of a different way of saying the same thing that saint bernard is talking about uh with freedom and in fact uh in a couple pages to discuss free choice he gives the lombard's definition which certainly uh, overlaps with what bernard was doing uh, quite a bit yeah ab absolutely and, and i think that's the 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 beneficial thing here in, in kind of reading these particular things it was you can see the threads that, that connect them all um but we yeah i think i think in reading this and approaching moral theology the way father survey is approaching it what we talked about with on grace and free choice is completely operable i mean it is the principle um how we just understand freedom how we understand our actions um then plays out in how we live towards moral excellence or away from it uh, but god gives us that that particular gift um to to do it um the next section, uh, I think we can kind of gloss over. It's it's basically just a list of documents from the Second Vatican Council um, that sort of emphasize and reiterate the point. Um, and he also makes a mention about like humana vitae and what that sort of implies in, again, the conversation on science and, and our sort of growing understanding uh on life issues and things like that um and so if if listeners if you pick this book up you can kind of go through that section to to kind of see what those particular documents have to say in relationship to to moral theology uh it's chock full the the documents of the second vatican council again in attempting to make that integrated whole speak of the moral life pretty extensively uh, but there are also things we covered a lot in uh, Catholic social teaching. Shock and awe, 
um, Catholic social teaching is an application of moral theology. Um, so I, I think that brings us to um, Father Survey's reflection um, on freedom and happiness. Um, this is also where he goes into uh, the understanding of you know, the Holy Spirit and the new law, things like that. So um, to start with, as he's mentioned before, the sort of patristic, scriptural, and uh, high medieval approach culminating, and I think best expressed uh, in St. Thomas Aquinas, is that moral theology relates to the pursuit of the ultimate good and happiness. That this is a morality of happiness and that the, the telos of the human life is beatific vision, the purpose. And he's going to contrast that against uh, moralities of obligation. Uh, instead of the pursuit of happiness, it is the obligation one has to uh, the transcendent God uh, it's it's this um, list of things that one must do. Uh, and and he sort of breaks that down. And again, to to kind of mirror what he was doing at the very beginning of the book, he talks about uh, the sort of uh, nucleus of of moralities of happiness being the beatitudes, um, and that this is Christ's response to the question of happiness that the sermon on the mount the beatitudes christ giving this evangelical law this new law is his answer to the question of happiness here are the things that will engender true happiness and that will push us towards beatific vision and that's the place from which morality is of happiness sort of uh, stem. And I think the best, I mean, maybe this is the second, my second favorite part. Um, but he talks about freedom for excellence versus freedom of indifference. And this is, I think, really kind of the core of what he's doing and kind of the core of the debate. Right. Yeah. I thought the same thing. I thought this was the this was the very centerpiece of his book, of his argument. This is what he's trying to get at. This, uh, you know, where are we now? Kind of trying to look at page numbers, about page 69. So he's been arguing for almost 70 pages, I feel like, to get to this point. And then the rest of the book is the fleshing out of or application of these points. What does it mean for a human to be free towards happiness, free for happiness? Um, and have a freedom to uh, to engage in happiness in an authentic way. You know, something he said earlier that I thought was important was that uh, this is top of sixty seven. He says we can't we 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 can't really renounce happiness or morality. Uh, this and this this connects with something that uh, Aquinas makes makes a big deal in his Summa. The pursuit of happiness is what and morality is what everyone does, whether they're, quote, moral or not, whether they're doing it right or not. Even the most heinous acts of violence and crime, 
that you can imagine, the individual committing them in some twisted way believes that it's leading towards happiness and that it is, quote unquote, the right thing to do. Uh, that's, that's a really, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, that's a really interesting point to dwell on pastorally because when someone comes to the confessional or you're doing pastoral counseling and someone keeps committing some sort of sin or grievous act, you're, you're trying to get them to see that they're actually attempting to achieve a happiness, a good. Everyone strives towards a good. No one actually strives towards the bad, the evil. Only, only through the distortion of sin do we actually come to believe that evil acts might fulfill the need for good and beauty and truth in our life. So this pursuit towards happiness then is the operative question of morality. And morality becomes the framework for a sinful human being of how to achieve this happiness. And so then this leads into this question you're about to describe of um, the, the various types of freedom and how we're able to actually arrive at happiness. And in the Christian sense, as you said, is the beatific vision of the blessed Trinity. Yeah. And, and, and I think um, just to sort of kind of break down some of these terms, I mean, he really hammers the fact that freedom for excellence, that sort of, that's the freedom he's talking about inspires moralities of happiness and that freedom of indifference inspires the moralities of obligation. And he breaks that down, I think, in a really helpful way. Um, and I think his his best and and most helpful sort of analogy, he gives it on uh, pages 69 through 72, and then he gives it again at the end of the book. It's this sort of analogy from human growth and development. And I've used this so many times. Uh, since I read this the first time, which was, I mean, probably maybe five or six years ago. Um, and I've used this to describe the moral life uh, on numerous occasions. And es essentially what the, what the analogy is, is that if you look at sort of childhood uh, adulthood and maturity you can kind of understand how how this um, freedom for excellence this this morality of, of happiness works that in the child there is uh, a, an aspect towards learning and towards obligation and that's an okay thing you tell a child don't touch the stove because it's hot and it will burn you the child then, having been told what the sort of expectation is, says, I can't touch the stove because it's hot. As the child learns and grows, it understands what hot means. Maybe it touches the stove. Maybe it touches something else that's hot. Maybe it, it just through osmosis and seeing a parent get burned by a stove or something like that, it begins to sort of understand why that particular law was imposed on the child because the child has a conscience because the child understands its subjectivity and the child knows that it's a it, it is themselves and so the first step is this sort of um, obligation this telling learning incorporating the law 
then you move into adolescence you move into to a period where you're growing in freedom growing into uh, adulthood kind of moving in that direction and you find that there are fewer obligations that are imposed as you grow towards adulthood this is the time where you're supposed to be learning to make those decisions yourself you're learning to interiorize the particular laws that you were taught and so you may, you continue maybe make mistakes there are few you know here's a curfew here's a this here's a that but you're learning how to judge you're learning how to put that wisdom into practice then you've got maturity which is that sort of full flowering of the adulthood of the moral life where it becomes a completely interior reality you are formed and informed and then you can begin the process of making decisions and acting and living according to moral excellence this is this is when you know you've exited your apprenticeship and you've entered into your uh, your craft and this is what all human beings should be doing you should become craftsmen of the moral life you should be excellent it should be artistic it should be creative it should be beautiful it should be true and it should be good and you know we can see this i mean very practically speaking uh, you know we 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 all i'm sure have mentors uh, and people who have helped us and and you know at certain points given us those obligations from on high that we then learned put into practice began to understand ourselves then we progress and we learn and we grow and then maybe we begin to mentor someone else that's sort of a natural process in the in in the human experience and the the moral life follows that i think that's a that's a really beautiful way to understand uh, true moral excellence is that we move from obligation towards, in a sense, freedom. It's a, it's a progressive growth towards freedom and it's a progressive conformity to the will of God over time. And we become better and better at it. We become more wise, uh, as we mature. Um, the next piece, I think the kind of alternate piece of that is freedom of indifference, which engenders moralities of obligation, because nature in those particular systems gets subordinated to freedom. Law becomes the source of morality and acts become indifferent choices, and they're morally good or bad insofar as they conform to the legal obligation. And this is where Father Survey kind of goes in with Occam uh, and starts beginning to say that you know, the the kind of nominalist answer is ultimately, if God wanted, he could change a legal precept and that an evil act could become good if God wanted to. And so then you'd have to follow what was at one point an evil act because God has decided it's now a good act for it to be good. And so uh in in the notes i i kind of mentioned that this destroys divine impassibility that that this completely rejects that god is unchanging um and so he becomes this sort of changeable arbitrary capricious sort of entity 
And we just have to basically follow the law because the law is what is ultimately uh, impassable. The law becomes divine in a sense. Um, and there's no interiority. There's no understanding uh, that how we act and our, our motivations and everything are actually pushing us towards happiness. It's, it's just happiness isn't a question. Um, it's just do the thing God told you to do because God told you to do it. It's a law. Follow it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this, this is ultimately how we get moral imperatives that are completely divorced from the pursuit of the good. Um, there, there is a, there's a, I think a commonality here with a, with the sort of, uh, islamic theological view of allah you know god is you know what whatever god does is is good he i mean there, there's he is not good he, he just does good because he does it um and i think that does a lot of damage to the pursuit of uh the pursuit of excellence because it, it it kind of means that excellence is a moving target but it also means that it's not something that you even participate in it's not something you even engage with it's just a blanket check the box um and if if the our reader or our listeners are are reading this particular book uh page 74 he gives examples on page 74, it's like a little side-by-side two-column kind of chart on the two forms of freedom and the, the two types of morality. Uh, and this chart is really good. Uh, I'll give just an example. In the column, Freedom for Excellence, he says, the ability to act with excellence and perfection whenever one wishes, that's the maturity of the moral life. Freedom of indifference is just simply the ability to choose between contraries. Or freedom for excellence, virtue is an aspect of freedom. It is the personal ability, whether acquired or infused, to act with perfection. It causes joy. And freedom of indifference, virtue is a habit of submission to the law. And I think that one is, makes it very clear, the difference between the two. Um, and then freedom for indifference, law is external to freedom which it limits through obligation. It is the work of pure will on the part of the legislator. And then with freedom for excellence, law has an educational role in the growth of freedom. It is the work of wisdom and corresponds to one's intimate longings. See, to me, this is just, the freedom for excellence is such a humanizing, such a, effective accounting for the reality of the human experience uh, so much more than the the sort of freedom of difference and morality of obligation so i think we can now kind of uh, briefly mention the fact um, that we don't have to go into i think lots of depth here uh, because it, it it's pretty apparent once you start breaking it apart. 
that happiness and pleasure are not the same thing. That if we are pursuing a morality of happiness, we have to distinguish that, uh, distinguish it from from pleasure, uh, and ultimately joy. And I think most of us kind of understand that distinction. Um, that true happiness lies in knowing and living within the divine life. That true happiness pertains to our perfection. It pertains to our excellence and to to virtue and so it may not always be the most pleasurable uh, true happiness may in fact mean that you have to experience suffering and that you um, being conformed to the life of christ imitate the life of christ which spoiler alert ended in his passion death and then resurrection and ascension which we should all be celebrating um but I think I think this is helpful because it basically says like no this isn't pleasure seeking this isn't uh, make yourself feel good sort of morality in a in a sort of purely natural sense but this is ultimately towards our good and towards our perfection and that is ultimately the more fulfilling action it's the it's the more fulfilling reality um and he he includes a little you know quotes from saint augustine which saint augustine and saint thomas aquinas are very much saying the same thing um about even even someone doing something bad evil sinful is ultimately trying to do something good they're trying to get happiness but they may confuse it with pleasure or they may confuse it with something else uh, they didn't steal the money because they weren't going to do anything with the money they thought the money would bring them happiness you know, buy a Maserati, whatever. Um, so St. Augustine says, thus all agree that they want to be happy, just as they would if questioned all agree that they want to rejoice. And it is joy itself that they call the happy life. And then, but for those who freely serve you, for them, you are their joy, speaking to God. And this is the happy life, this alone, to rejoice in you, from you, through you. And I, I mean, that's that's the pursuit of the moral life in a nutshell. All right, so this this leads us on to the next chapter, which is the Holy Spirit and the new law. And in this chapter, he covers and goes into further detail about things he's already talked about in, in pretty extensive ways. And so basically, to reiterate, because we are given the Holy Spirit, because it is um, something that is gifted to us interiorly. Um, the new law is an interior law, just like he points out with natural law that it is something that is interior. The new law builds on that. It perfects that. It brings that into its ultimate fulfillment. And so the new law, which is given to us by Christ, revealed to us, um, is something that operates at a higher level than what's come before. And so I think uh, from a very basic level, we can see in the Sermon on the Mount that Christ, in talking about what is expected of the Christian, how the Christian lives, how the Christian behaves, it gets moved from that exterior reality to an interior reality. 
yes, actually going out acting and murdering someone is evil and bad and against the law. But hating someone in your heart is committing the same sin. It's doing the same thing. And so just like the analogy about growth in the moral life, moving from childhood to adolescence to full maturity and adulthood, so too has the new law through Christ moved from a sense of exteriority to a sense of interiority. This is truly writing the law on the heart. This is what it means. Um, and so the Holy Spirit living in us both empowers us towards our perfection. The Holy Spirit also, in a sense, uh, transforms our conscience, enables it to uh, truly judge and to truly understand. And it becomes uh, the, the source, the, the fire of our wisdom and allows us to uh, reach that sense, that state of moral uh, wisdom and maturity. And I think it's really helpful here too that Father Survey sort of points out uh, that the sacraments act as this vessel of, of transformation and grace to us. Um, and so we have the, the text of the law in the Sermon on the Mount we have the text of Christ's evangelical law given to us, and the instruments of that law are the sacraments. The sacraments bring us into the divine life. Uh, our life radiates from the altar outward. And so when we participate, we grow in holiness. When we truly worship God, become a member and an active part of of the church and an active participant in the sacramental life that is this refining and this sort of uh, school for moral excellence uh, the church is the school for moral excellence and the church is the community empowered and enlivened by the holy spirit as the body of christ and so Again, he we've mentioned this before, but he points out that this is not a juridical reality. It's a transformational reality. And he goes in to the ideas of faith and hope and charity as being these infused virtues, which lead us and propel us towards moral excellence. Um, faith is the mother of Christian morality. Um, and so I think this is a really, it's a really helpful section, but it ultimately is a section that having read the rest of the book, um, he's basically touched on, uh, I think in, in pretty great detail. So that I think um, means we can sort of move on now towards um, getting towards the end here. We have natural law and freedom. Um, and that is, again, a lot of the, the same stuff that we've gotten before with the addition of what he calls the five inclinations that establish the natural law within us. And I think a quick rundown of those um, five inclinations would be helpful. 
he says natural law does not function by constraint, but by attraction. And so this is the, the point of the natural law is that we are attracted towards the good in some way. Um, and so the first inclination is that inclination to the good. So the good is attractive, but it can be disordered. And so this is when we want the good, but we pursue something that is not going to be the ultimate good, uh, just like we talked about with Augustine and Aquinas. So this is attraction, not obligation. We desire the good. The good does not impose an obligation on us. The second inclination is the natural inclination to preserve being. And so this is in a sense, the kind of root of where we get life uh, issues within the church, they, they spring from this. So we are made in God's image. We have a positive love of self. This is not the same thing that gets talked about in a lot of circles today about love yourself. Um, a positive love of self relates to your love for the divine image that you bear um it's also the place from which when we talk about the golden rule and we talk about loving god and loving neighbors um why does scripture tell us you know love your neighbor as yourself well it's because you love yourself it's because you exist and want the best for yourself um and so our obligation, our relationship, our interaction with the other is motivated by the same reality, that they are worth loving, that they are worth um, protecting, and that they being made in the image of God uh, are precious, uh, which then, from a community standpoint, imposes uh, care for life. And so we become those who care for life and the church has always been uh focused on this uh and it's not just about the questions like abortion but it's also questions about war and capital punishment and in the modern day access to health care and things like that and that's not a liberal conservative thing that's ultimately born out of the inclination to preserve being um he also mentions in the text, you know, sort of he, he's he's pretty brief on this, but uh, what he calls is like the appropriate sort of measures for self-defense. He doesn't get into specifics about that. Um, but the idea that, you know, one does preserve one's own being and the being of, it, of, of someone's you know family and things like that. The next is the inclination to marry. Um, so marriage engages the entire personality through the bonds of affection. It's not simply biological in the kind of pursuit of reproduction and sex, but it does incorporate those things. Um, so generation, which is having children, and mutual love and support are the focus of the inclination of marriage. Uh, and he talks about the family being the incubator of the moral life. Uh, which I think is really helpful uh, because it is the place where we learn, you know, godly parents teaching godly children. 
what it means to to sort of pursue moral excellence. The fourth inclination is to know the truth. This one, I think, might be the most sort of esoteric uh, and difficult to understand of the inclinations. But at the end of the day, the intellect has a primary function in the moral life. And it must be cultivated. Uh, so being made in the image of God, being human being, we have uh, we have the intellect. We have this beautiful ability to learn and to judge and to synthesize and formulate thought. He also talks about the right to education um, as far as one is able, uh, which I think is helpful. And the inclination to know the truth means that the intellect is restored when it pursues truth. Um, so Father Wes, I was thinking about Hugh of St. Victor uh, and sort of his approach to education here, um, that education is ultimately a virtue, that it is a pursuit of, of virtue itself, uh, which I think is, is very clearly based on this sort of idea. And then the final one, I think, kind of makes sense. We've had, in, in a sense, some of these inclinations have been personal. Now we're sort of going out to the to the whole is the natural natural inclination to life in society. Um, so we are social and we are drawn by affection and attraction to associate with others. Um, and we understand that in our relationships with other people. We, we understand our subjectivity and our objectivity in relationship to other people. Um, Preeminently, this gets expressed through language. We, unlike, you know, again, I have the best dog in the world, but she can't talk. Um, she can speak if I tell her to, she just barks. But we can actually engage with each other at an ex extremely high level of accuracy and depth and intimacy through language. Um, also in this view, the individual is not primary. Um, we see this is sort of the natural inclination to solidarity in a sense. Um, so justice, charity, coordination, collaboration, they all stem from this understanding that we are communal. Um, the sort of result of moralities of obligation kind of shifts this towards the individual and away from the community and the society. And so the individual becomes the focus. And when that happens, again, it's imposition of laws, regulations, things to prevent that other person over there from doing some bad thing. Whereas the inclination to life in society means that we are actually drawn to each other to form positive and help healthy relationships. And when we do that, we want to, following the inclination to preserve being, love our neighbor as ourself. And so our inclination is not to take advantage of the other person, but to live in a harmonious society with the other person. But I mean sin does get in the way. So if this isn't a this isn't saying that, you know, the this utopic vision of community where we all love each other and get along is something that is 
naturally going on. Um, but it also points to the fact that within the church, this should be the norm, that the church is the society empowered by the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, pursuing virtue and happiness. This should be uh, something that happens within the church. Um, and as any three priests together will tell you, it's not what happens in the church. <laughs> um, so I, I think that ultimately, um, when we're talking about the moral life, we need to understand it as, as this growth in wisdom, this growth in holiness. But that doesn't mean that you get to sort of rest on your laurels and say like, oh, well, I'm just some sinful person and, you know, I'm not perfect and all this kind of stuff. No, but you can pursue maturity and we expect every child to reach an age of maturity. We expect our children, we expect our children's children to eventually at some point become mature functional adults. Uh, the same is true in the church. Um, and that's kind of how he ends the book. He goes back to that analogy of human growth and development uh, to point us towards what the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of happiness actually looks like, um, which I think is is really helpful. Uh, so any any final thoughts, any any concluding remarks that you guys have uh, about this particular book? I like you, I think I found this to be very helpful because moral theology, when it's done poorly is, you know, it's almost like a, like, a, you know, very transactional, you know, if this, then this, you know, if, if you commit this sin, then here's the penance and that kind of thing. And to some degree that's necessary. I mean, you know, you, you want confessors to be consistent and things like that, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot more to it. And I think that he, the way uh, survey, um, roots the roots the venture in telos is very helpful um because for whatever else we do in moral theology it absolutely has to be geared towards towards those ends of happiness and and that kind of thing so i, I i'm very glad to have this book kind of in my arsenal so to speak i think it, it introduces a, a a helpful vocabulary and lexicon um, for those, especially in a in a parish context where these questions do come up sometimes and you have to help people walk through it. And if you I mean, sometimes I think they just want the chart, you know, if this, then this. But but the goal for us as pastors is forming our people. Um, and and this is a more much more conducive to that. It'll be harder for them in some ways, but it's that's what makes it worth it. Yeah, I like this book. I mean, it can it can seem a bit technical as we've gone through these the past two episodes or this one and the last one can be kind of technical and deep in moral theology. But really, this is a great book that kind of can lead, I'd say, the educated layperson into a foray into this world and start having the discussion that needs to be had, especially in our day and age. Moral theology is is not um, something in the pure view of a lot of lay people's minds. Well, it is not in the way that it should be. Everyone thinks morally, right? That's one of the premises of his books, of his book. So I like it. I, I think you it can be read. I think it could serve well as if a priest had 
some people in his parish that he knew he could work with and work walk through this and kind of a invite only book study to to really uh, get the parish thinking about these things and to have great discussion about morality and the way that the church is going to move forward in the next 15, 20, 30 years. So good book. Definitely get your hands on it and read it as much as we've done walking through. You have, Father Creighton. Thank you for describing it and articulating it. Um, I think that it's a great introduction, but there's still so much packed into his own words. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, I was thinking about this. One of the ways that I kind of understand this particular book with, I, I kind of relate it to liturgical theology. And so with liturgical theology, you have liturgics and liturgical theology. They're sort of the nuts and bolts of how you do the liturgy and then the reason why you do the liturgy. And I think with moral theology, just like liturgical theology, those two things kind of get conflated and they become sort of nerdy and esoteric and it's all nuts and bolts and it's all technical jargon and this, that, and the other without understanding that there's actually a heart behind the action. Um, so the list, while maybe good and easy and beneficial for some people to understand, uh, do this and don't do that and that kind of thing, that's more geared towards like the nuts and bolts. But you have to have this theological foundation. You have to understand the theory and its interconnectedness with the project of knowing God, pursuing holiness. Liturgical theology is the same way, right? That action doesn't just exist to be an action. It's there for a reason. It follows a theological um, purpose. Um, and so what we do follows a theological purpose. And so this book is more geared towards the why of moral theology than the what in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it's really good. Um, so listeners, read it, enjoy it. It's only 100 and something pages long, so enjoy. Um, and remember to, if you do read it, join the Discord and chat with us about it. Uh, that leads us into our favorite section, what are we into? Father Miles, what are you into? Well, I guess what I've been into recently is just uh, being a priest. And we've had a lot of issues at the church, a lot of pastoral issues. And, you know, for some people, I feel like when there's conflict, um, people like to run from it. Or it makes you go, man, as a priest, there's all this conflict at church. Why didn't I just sell insurance or become a mailman or something like that? But um, I feel like, you know, the spirit strengthens me in this, these moments and others can um, uh, attest to this. It's kind of the um, the resistance makes you more resilient. And so I'm kind of here for it. It's it's interesting just reflecting on the life of what it means to be a priest is you go to seminary, you do all this theological training. You were just talking about liturgics, Father Creighton, and anyone who sits in on our conversations at like clergy retreats or conferences, you know, we kind of sit around and talk about these sort of nerdy things. But being a priest is this weird jack of all trades, all encompassing thing where, I mean, in one moment, I'm talking about a bunch of men wearing dresses and chanting. And then the next minute, I'm having to deal with people in their marriage or people who are upset with me 
or or who knows what, right? Finances. And so it is it is this weird profession that touches all aspects of human life. And some days I'm like, I'm not sure I do any of them well. Um, but you know, by the grace of God, here I am. So that's about all the time I've had over the past couple of weeks to be into anything. So there you go. Father Wes, what are you into? Well, in some ways, uh, same, uh, ditto, uh, to all that, but, um, but kind of in light of that one thing I've decided to do this summer is to just every day, I, I sort of have a little morning routine, you know, I wake up, I try and run and then I, um, I come in and I, um, do morning prayer and then I make sure I update my fantasy football or fantasy baseball or whatever's going on with that. And, you know, all these, I have this very structured morning and then, one thing I've kind of added to that is uh, I'm going to read through uh, the works of Martin Thornton uh, again. I've read a good chunk of it um, before, but I'm starting with pastoral theology of reorientation, um, which I think is really helpful uh, for being in the parish. You know, he, he sort of coins the term parochial theology, um, and I think that's really helpful. Uh, it's something that you can read in seminary for sure, and it's good. But I think once you get into parish life and you kind of settle into it, it's good to have sources like this. Or I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, my the other book I'm reading, um, Pastor as Minor Poet, you know, these kind of sources uh, to really not only inspire, but to sort of give you some some strength, because there are definitely times where uh, the parish life can be a little bit more difficult, but it's uh, it's good. It's good. So um, these are these are helpful tools. Um, so anyway, so Martin Thornton, uh, specifically pastoral theology is what, I, what I'm into right now. Very cool. Yeah. Um, well, what I'm into is not as important and uh, heady and real life as what you guys are into. Um, so I'll bring it down. Um, I'm really into... Uh, getting back into uh, to rock climbing. Um, I spent years actually working in the climbing industry. Um, I was a climbing guide and instructor, worked at a you know climbing gym for a long time. Uh, I've done a lot of climbing, but uh, seminary means that you're busy and doing more graduate work after seminary means that you're busy and getting ordained means that you're busy. And I've been sort of missing having that particular physical outlet um, and exercising and, and, you know, taking care of my body and everything. And so, yeah, um, back, back climbing and it feels amazing and I'm super sore, but loving, all of it and climbing with some good old friends and climbing partners and things again. Uh, also been thinking about a book idea about uh, rock climbing and the Christian life and the parallels between the two. So maybe I'll be that guy and I'll write the, you know, devotional for climbers or whatever, and it can be sold at family Christian bookstores and nobody will buy it. That would be awesome. I'd buy it. I mean, out of sympathy, but I'd buy it. <laughs> out of sympathy. That's it. All right. Well, listeners, if you like what you're doing, make sure to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. 
rate, rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and share us with your friends. Also, join the communion of Patreon saints over at our Patreon for just $5 a month. Uh, Father Wes, will you pray us out? We'll be praying the fourth, the colic for the fourth Sunday after Easter, given that it's, it's, uh, themes are pertinent to what we've been discussing. Let us pray. O Almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and defections of sinful men, grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest, and desire that which thou dost promise, that so among the sundry and manifold changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.